Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, finance, politics, and sports. And I give each speaker just six minutes to make his opening argument. Today's topic is, who should we let into the United States? Our speakers will be economists Ran Emberminsky from Stanford and Garrett Jones from George Mason University. Ran is the author of Streets of Gold, America's Untold Story of Immigrant Success. And Garrett wrote the book, The Culture Transplant, How Migrants Make the Economies They Move to a Lot Like the Ones They Left. Both speakers are pro-immigration, but Garrett wants us to focus our efforts on recruiting immigrants with skills. Garrett believes that the success of immigrants' descendants is a function of the culture imbued from the old country. In addition, the immigrants' social and cultural mores will affect America's social mores as well. So be very careful who you let in. There is much to cover, so buckle up. I make this podcast to learn, and I offer it free of charge. If you enjoy today's podcast, please subscribe from our website for weekly emails so that you can continue to enjoy this content. Okay, let's begin with Rand's opening six-minute remarks. So we often hear this nostalgic view that past European immigrants came to the United States with nothing, and then they moved very quickly from rags to riches, in contrast to immigrant groups today that come from very different countries that aren't making it, don't even attempt to assimilate and become Americans. This is where the phrase streets of gold came from. It was this idea that this is a country where you can arrive without anything and make it. But of course, we chose the title of our book, Streets of Gold, for a very different reason. An Italian immigrant in the early 1900s said, I came to America because I heard the streets were paved with gold. But when I arrived, I found out three things. The first one was that the streets were not paved with gold. (laughs) The second is that they were not paved at all. (laughs) And finally, I was the one expected to pave them. (laughs) So this immigrant knew that immigrants had to pave the way. In this research that Leah and I have been doing over the last 15 years, we build data on millions of immigrant lives to reassess the common myths about immigration and the American dream over the last one and a half centuries. Is it true that immigrants today are less successful than past immigrants? Is it true that they are less economically mobile than past immigrants? Is it true that immigrants today are making less effort to become Americans and to integrate culturally into the U.S.? Is it true that immigrant success come at the expense of the U.S. born and immigrants steal jobs and reduce the wages of the U.S. born? You can think of us like the curious grandchildren searching in the historical records for their grandparents and their great-grandparents and multiply these efforts by millions. We create genealogies of millions of millions of immigrants. We can follow them and their families over time. Once we have this data set, we can ask questions like, is it true that they moved quickly from rags to riches? How are the children doing? Who did they get married with? How did they name their children? Did they live in immigrant neighborhoods? Did they crowd out the US born and so on? What we find is that the American dream for immigrants is just as alive now as it was 100 years ago. Immigration has never been a short story. It's always been a novel. The first part of the novel, immigrants leave poorer countries, and by doing so, they at least double their income. You cannot find any policy that will alleviate global poverty 
as much as allowing people to move across borders. Then the second chapter, no rags to riches. <laughs> and if they came in rags, they did not move to riches very quickly. Many of our immigrants who came poor continued to be relatively poor throughout their lives, working manual jobs, never made it to white-collar occupations. The third part of the novel is the children of immigrants, and they are incredibly successful and incredibly upwardly economically mobile. Consider what happens when we compare the children of immigrants who grew up in poor families. For example, let's think about children growing up to parents in the 25th percentile of the income distribution. Today, that will mean that they grew up in families roughly equivalent to $30,000 per year. Think about it as both parents work for minimum wage jobs. When we do this apple-to-apple -apple comparison and look at the children growing up to equally poor families, what we find is that both today and in the past, the children of immigrants are very economically mobile, more so than the children of U.S.-born parents. This is true for families from nearly every sending country and in every historical period we look at. When immigrants come today, for example, from very poor countries like El Salvador, Laos, it is equally true as it was in the past. The children of poor immigrants are doing just as well as the children of poor Danes and Swedes and Norwegians 100 years ago. When we try to ask the question of what explains the fact that the children of immigrants are doing better than the children of the U.S.-born, and how come they are so economically mobile, well, some of it is that immigrants are motivated, those who make the move, they are risk-taking, entrepreneurial, they instill values in their children, they care more about the education of their children. But what we find in the data is strong evidence for a more mundane explanation, one that has to do with location choice. Immigrants tend to choose to live in the United States in places that offer high economic mobility for everyone. In the past, immigrants were very unlikely to settle in the U.S. South, which was a place of very low economic mobility. In contrast, the U.S. born are more rooted in place, because if you are born in the United States, moving to opportunity often means moving away from home, and that's hard. You don't just think about what are the economic returns from various parts of the United States. You think, my parents are here, my grandparents were born here, my network is here, my connections are here, my job is here, I love the food here. It's moving away from home, it's hard. Whereas immigrants are more footloose. They are already revealed by moving across the Atlantic that they are willing to move away from home. Once they come to a place where they have relatively very little connection, they may as well settle in places that offer upward mobility for them and their children immigrants who just arrived to the country a few years ago, you don't see that they are doing very well. Maybe they are more likely to use the welfare state. They are not catching up very quickly to the U.S. born. But when you take a longer-term perspective and you look at the children of immigrants and you look at past immigrant groups that are here for 100 years, then you realize that immigrants are doing very well. And so it is in this sense that the American dream for immigrants is just as alive today as it was in the past. And of course, there are many other things in the book that I'm happy to talk about, but I'll just leave it at that. The big debate about immigration policy today is whether we should use scarce immigration slots, primarily for the highly skilled worker. Why do you also want to encourage low-skill immigration? 
I think reasonable people can reach different conclusions from the data when it comes to what kind of immigrants we should accept. Immigrants tend to come in two groups today, high-skilled and low-skilled. The very high-skilled ones create jobs, they are more likely to start up businesses, more likely to invent, they are creating jobs to the U.S. born. The less-skilled ones tend to work in construction, in landscaping, taking care of the elderly, and jobs that U.S.-born workers don't do at the going wages. There are services that exist because immigrants are coming here. And so if your goal is to have high-tech people to start up businesses and you have a very limited number of immigration visas, it's reasonable to conclude that you want to prioritize high-skilled immigrants. But we shouldn't worry that much about accepting less-skilled immigrants because they do services that are very useful for us and their children end up doing very well. Tell us about the history of U.S. immigration as our policies shifted from open borders to restricted access. In the Ellis Island era, European immigrants could come to the United States without green card, without visas, without showing that they had a job or a family member waiting for them, open borders for European immigrants. Some countries lost a quarter to a third of the population to the United States during this period. The 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act was the first act in the United States that excluded a certain immigrant group based on their country of origin, and that shaped very much the kind of immigrants who come to the United States, followed by the 1907 Gentlemen Agreement with the Emperor of Japan to stop bringing Japanese immigrants to this country. Then quotas set in the 1920s heavily favor immigrants from northern and western Europe over immigrants from southern and eastern Europe. And then immigration declined from about a million per year to about 125,000 per year that heavily favor western Europe. In 1965, the borders were opened up again. Immigration visas increased from about 150,000 to 675,000 legal immigration visas per year. Because the demand for immigration today is larger than the number of visas produced, this gave rise to undocumented immigration, which is a concept that did not really exist, because in the past everybody was allowed to enter legally to this country. The lottery visa is more of a curiosity. Two-thirds of immigrants come here through family reunification staff. The other third is mostly visa-sponsoring high-skilled immigrants, universities, tech, H-1B, and so on, with a trickle of refugees and the lottery visas that are allowed to enter. What we are saying is that we don't need to do that much micromanaging because even people who arrive from relatively poor background eventually end up doing well. How critical were the changes to immigration policies that the U.S. adopted in the 1920s? Without the historical restrictions, we will have very different people coming here. It was very clear in the past that there was immigration open to the United States, but only if you're a white person, free white person. Even when Italians were starting to come, they were not considered white. If you think today people say shocking things about immigrants, you should listen to Henry Cabot Lodge, a senator with a Harvard PhD in history in charge of the commission that opened the borders in the first age of mass migration. Immigrants are from the lowest classes and lowest races, and he referred to the Italians. We always find over and over in this research that people forget that they were immigrants once upon a time, and they voice the same complaints, only targeting different immigrant groups. Definitely the way that the immigration end up being in the U.S. is a function of immigration restrictions. What data informs you that immigrants who earned at the 25th percentile in income had descendants that were at the median level of income? Data that is based on 
IRS records linked to census data. People write their children as dependents when they feel taxes. That way you see the person when he's a child, and you see what the father is doing and how much he's earning. And then you can see the child 30 years later when they feel their own tax returns. It's based on IRS tax records of the entire U.S. population. We focus on group of very, very low income. There is no way for them to move down. So most of the people move up to some degree. And this is already being noted by Raj Chetty that the mobility of U.S.-born people is relatively limited. And what we find is that the mobility of the children of the immigrants is higher. So, for example, on average, somebody grow up to U.S.-born parents in the 25th percentile is reaching, on average, the 45th percentile of the income distribution. And I'm focusing here on white because I don't want to conflate it with the black-white differences in the United States. Moving to the 45th percentile, the immigrants, on average, move to the 51th percentile. If you ask the question of what's the probability that somebody from the very bottom will move to the very top, immigrants are twice as likely to become rich relative to the children of the U.S. born. This part is based on statistics. Same thing for the immigrants in the past. We link people across population censuses, and that way we can see children growing up in their parents' homes, and then we can see them again when they have careers of their own, and that way we conclude it. Why did you conclude that immigration of low-skilled workers would not reduce wages of U.S.-born, low-skilled workers. We talk about it in the book. What happened when the border closed in the 1920s? You know, and it closed asymmetrically for people from Eastern Europe versus Western Europe. So we can compare two different places that would otherwise be very different, but only one of them was mostly German, the other one was mostly Italians, and so one of them will receive fewer immigrants. And what we find is that it's not the case that when fewer immigrants come, the wages of U.S.-born increase. And the reason for that is that firms have other options beyond just replacing immigrant workers with U.S.-born workers. For example, they can mechanize, they can shift crops that require more machines than labor. And so the adjustments that happen in the market are not such that benefit necessarily the U.S.-born A substantial number of immigrants who were unsuccessful in the U.S. returned home to the original country of origin. Do you think there's a selection bias by focusing on the successful immigrants who remained in the U.S.? And do you think that going forward, the unsuccessful immigrant will stick around and not go home, especially if there are attractive welfare alternatives here? I don't view it as a bias. People who come here are the ones who self-selected to come here and to stay here. And in fact, the evidence support in every immigration wave, about 30% of the people go back home. And they are the ones who didn't make it. The immigrants who come here and stay long term tend to be the ones who are more successful. How did refugees compare to those immigrants who came for economic reasons? If you go to Ellis Island, you can listen to these immigrants speaking about why did they come here. They have about 1,500 interviews that they did later in life with people who passed through Ellis Island. And so we digitized and transcribed those. And so now we can hear and we can see how well they speak English. We can compare people who came because they said, oh, I just wanted better economic opportunity versus the ones who said I came because there was a war, a revolution. I was kicked out, anti-Semitism and so on. People who came as refugees end up having better English later in life and earned higher wages in the United States. Refugees, they have nowhere to go back to, so they try to make it in their new country. Whereas if you're an economic immigrant, if it doesn't work, you go back. And so that's kind of one place where selection 
played a role in some of our findings. I'm not uh, here to advocate for a particular policy. I will just say, in reality, this did not happen. We had the Braceros. They came here, they worked in farms. And then in 1964, the program stopped. And it was not the case that American workers started to replace the foreign workers. Many farms closed, so apparently it wasn't profitable enough for them to increase the wages and keep the farm. There is a mechanization, and you can see there is closing of farms, and you don't see a lot of increasing wages. Firms were very flexible in moving to other things. Similarly, in Miami, in the famous paper of David Card, the Mariel Boatlift, many people came to Miami. Did the wages of U.S. born increase when they came to Miami? Not really. What happened was Miami was quicker to mechanize. You don't often see the wages of the U.S. born unskilled increase. Is it misleading to consider today's immigrants as a single group? For example, do we see similar economic results from Indian and Chinese immigrants versus Latin Americans? It's definitely the children of low-income immigrants from India and China are doing way better than the children of the U.S. born, whereas the children of, say, Mexicans and the Dominican Republic are just doing a little bit better than the U.S. born. What explains this is something that goes a little bit beyond what we can do with big data. You need to kind of zoom in on particular cases. We have some ideas. A lot of the immigrants from India and China are not very poor. And so if you are a very poor immigrant from China and India, you are likely know somebody from China or India that is not very poor, and that might be helpful for you, whereas a lot of the immigrants from Laos and the Dominican Republic tend to be the poor ones. That could be one thing. The other thing that can explain it has to do with the way the visa works. Only up to 7% of immigration can come from every individual sending country. That is not very binding for Luxembourg and for uh, Israel, but it's very binding for China and for India. And so the ones who end up making it are so good that even if they are poor, that could be another thing that explains it. What we can largely rule out is that there are some cultures that will always stay permanent underclass, that just are not making it out of the 50 sending countries that we can look at of people of uh, relatively poor immigrants, 47 of them are doing better than the children of the U.S. born. It's interesting to ask what are the three countries that are doing worse than the U.S. born, and that's an interesting story that is, that is a bit of the exception of what we are finding in this, and those are immigrants from majority black populations, so more research is needed on those countries, for example. Next topic is the sociological impact of immigration. Many Americans like America the way it is. They prefer the near universality of English as the dominant language. They want to practice democratic norms. They love our culture, apple pie and baseball. They're tolerant of immigrants and foreign cultures up to a point. They love Tex-Mex, but they don't want Mexican-style law enforcement or a substantial number of non-Christians. They want to live in America and not a country that has culture and social mores of Mexico, China, India, or Nigeria. Many Americans believe that we can assimilate a limited number of immigrants at any given period of time, and that to add substantial numbers beyond that who cannot assimilate is dangerous to our society. Let me tell you two aspects of our research that talks to that. The first is we look at congressional speeches and presidential speeches from 1850 until today how our immigrants talked about and how this changed over time, how the attitudes towards immigrants change over time. 
And what we find is the attitudes towards immigrants today is as positive on average as ever been in the history of the United States. It is also the most polarized by political party. Democrats are more likely, when they talk about immigration, to mention family, community, and Republicans more likely to mention crime, illegality. They speak about the economics of immigrants. They speak in similar voices, Republicans and Democrats. But where the polarization happens is when they speak about cultural stuff. You came to the country illegally, they are more likely to commit crime, drugs, and so on. In the book, we also try to look at cultural assimilations. For example, we can see the tendency of how well they speak English. Do they marry within their own culture or do they marry outside their culture? Do they give their children more American-sounding names? We can look at things like the propensity to move away of immigrant neighborhoods. What we find is that immigrants don't completely converge to the behavior of the U.S. born. They give more American-sounding names, but they don't give American names as the Americans. They tend to marry outside the group, but they are still more likely to marry inside the group. So immigrants retain some of their own original identity while at the same time assimilating in some other culture. Now, 20 years in the U.S., they are still different than the U.S. born. But again, that seems to be the margin that divides people in the United States about how immigrants contribute in terms of culture. Thanks, Ran. Let's move to our second speaker, Garrett Jones from George Mason University. Go ahead, Garrett. What's the best immigration policy? Here's my proposal. Admit anybody from China who wants to move to your country and stay there for a very long time. This is a promising policy because countries across Southeast Asia that have had large numbers of Chinese migrants have better governments, less corruption, higher levels of income, and widely shared prosperity. And this really matters for human well-being. Why should one believe that migration from China would actually make poor countries richer? Notice the pattern across Southeast Asia. These market-dominant minorities have a disproportionate share of billionaires and leading positions across the economy. It's about building productivity that is shared widely across the entire country. This happens because migration creates a culture transplant, making the economies that migrants move to a lot like the economies that migrants left. The performance of the Chinese economy before the age of Columbus, this is a golden age of government administration and of innovation. While China has had very difficult times in the intervening centuries, now China is getting back to its long-run economic destiny. China is actually the world's poorest country made up of people from China. Singapore, Hong Kong, rest in peace, Taiwan. These are countries that are quite prosperous by global standards, and they're all made up of disproportionately of Chinese migrants and their descendants. My book shows that attitudes toward trust, frugality, and the proper role of government seem to persist across generations. My book isn't about first-generation migrants. What I'm interested in is whether second-generation, third-generation, even fourth-generation migrants carry values and carry economic attitudes that are similar to the attitudes in the nations that their ancestors came from. If I'm right, then full assimilation is a myth. That can be good news and bad news, but paying attention to that news is going to be important for shaping the wealth of nations. I visited a history museum in Killarney, Ireland. 90% of its citizens emigrated to the U.S. during the potato famine, and I wondered who stayed, who lacked the grit and determination to try a new life outside of Ireland during a famine. Migrants vary with educational credentials and entrepreneurial spirit. 
Why do you suspect that each wave of immigrants will be similar? People who migrate are different on average than people who don't. And there are going to be a lot of idiosyncratic reasons. Elena Ferrante's excellent novel, Those Who Leave and Those Who Stay, captures a version of this for Naples. People who stay in southern Italy versus those who migrate to the north for economic prosperity, there's a difference between them. But there are a lot of family ties that hold you back sometimes. There's an interesting study by a young Harvard professor that finds that the Swedes who left Sweden to come to America tended to be economically quite different. The people who left had more unusual names than those who stayed behind. If you have unusual names, that correlates somewhat with openness, being willing to take new risks. Maybe the people who stayed behind were more conformist than those who left. One of the great things that America has going for it is that the migrants who come here chose to make a long and difficult journey. So we definitely have some kind of selection mechanism that probably matters two, three, four generations as those traits are passed on. And people who go back tend to be the weaker performers. For every migrant coming to the U.S. from Italy, a third went back to Italy, that selection as well. The University of California, San Diego economist Gregory Clark wrote a book called The Sun Also Rises, and he spoke at my book club. In 1750, the king of Sweden knighted 250 successful people and scientists like Lord Celsius. The descendants of these 250 noblemen are doing much better financially than the average Swede named Anderson nearly 300 years later. Which means, despite the regression to the mean in intelligence, these descendants have other attributes that lead to their continuing success. Clark's work is really great. I've been reading his stuff since the 90s. He documented a new way to find evidence for intergenerational persistence by looking at unusual names and how they're transmitted over time. He was able to start off doing this in England because churches were really careful about keeping records of who was born and who lived in the parish. This record-keeping meant it was possible to see not just how economic success is transmitted from one generation to the next, But across multiple generations, we have this meme that's floating around of reversion to the mean or three generations from shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves. If you go up, then your grandchildren are just going to go right back down. And Clark has done a really good job demolishing that simple story because he has data across multiple generations. Clark's multi-generational, even centuries-long evidence shows that people don't revert to the national mean very much. They tend to revert to a mean that's their family heritage, their own lineage's heritage. Professor Clark was disappointed that there was not a reversion to the mean because he was hoping for intergenerational equality. But he found across countries in the U.S., Sweden, the U.K., and even China that success continues across generations. And even the Cultural Revolution in China did not hold back the previous elite's offspring. People do revert to a mean, but the mean that migrants revert to is an average of two means. Let me be very simple in my statistics. I'm of Irish descent, so I'm guessing my attitudes have converged 50% to the sort of average numbers of the United States, 50% some average attitudes in Killarney, Ireland. I have a Norwegian friend, and he told me that when there was a mass migration from Norway to the U.S. over 100 years ago, that the Norwegians that moved to the U.S. were much more religious and that the atheists stayed home. This reminds me about George Borjas' work about ethnic capital, which is that process of migrating is frightening. I come from a Mormon background. Utah is, of course, formed by people wanted to move to a place in the late 1800s where people shared their religion. And that shared religious tie gave people some safety net that made them willing to take this ridiculous journey across the American plains, dying at high rates to get to the promised land. Your colleague, 
at George Mason, Tyler Cowen, did some work on migration within the United States. And he believes that internal migration is a sign of economic success as individuals move to cities where their skills are most useful, like insurance in Hartford or film in Hollywood. Tyler is worried that internal migration is declining in the United States. When you're migrating, as you point out, people can pick the place they want to go to. And one of the great things about cities is that cities are a portfolio of alternatives. So we know from other research, partly from Ed Glazer at Harvard's great work, that job market dynamism is a lot more robust in cities. So there could be a trade-off between your family ties and the best economic prospects. I'm a big fan of the research on amoral familism, where family values can be a chain that holds people down from their economic potential. Wanting to be close to your family can keep you from taking on the most innovative, riskiest, highest performing economic prospects. This is something that you can see most clearly in sort of the comparisons between Northern and Southern Europe. Southern Europe, strong family values. Northern Europe, more individualism, more of a nuclear family. As a result, people in Southern Europe are less likely to move a long way for a job because it's important to take care of your mom. And that that can have economic consequences for the entire society. In 1998, I was transferred to Salman Brothers Tokyo branch for a year. I was one of only a few migrants to this wealthy country. Salman excelled at technology transfer within its branch offices. Our proprietary trading department shared information and trading methods with our London and Japanese colleagues. But away from my work, I don't think that Japanese society benefited at all from my presence. And frankly, my attitudes and values were little changed from my living in Japan, other than my interest in Japanese food. As your example illustrates, one year is next to nothing. Assimilation is overwhelmingly partial and tends to take a couple of generations. On many measures, Europeans have found first-generation migrants assimilate more than second-generation migrants do on some attitudes, right? There's a sort of backlash, a sort of springboarding effect among second-generation migrants. I spent two semesters at George Mason's Korea campus. I've been able to visit Japan for a few times to visit my sister-in-law's family over there. And you're right, Japan is a country that has not decided to take the path of mass low-skilled migration that the United States has. It's a culture with high entry barriers. There's extreme politeness at the same time. There's a huge entry barrier to being treated as fully Japanese. Our next topic is Howard French's book about Chinese migration to Africa that highlights the lack of assimilation with Chinese migrants. Howard French gives an example of a Chinese migrant who opens a convenience store that does very well. He expands it into a gas station, and before you know it, he's doing auto work. And very quickly, the Chinese migrant is one of the most prosperous men in town. He's brought with him not only his knowledge, but all those soft skills like grit, frugality, and academic achievement. The Chinese migrant will succeed, and likely so will his progeny. But it also breeds resentment and animosity. Who are these Chinese guys doing better than us? We should confiscate this gas station. In a world where property rights are problematic, I'm not so sure I would be recommending to Chinese migrants that they consider Africa as their home. Nobel Prize winner V.S. Naipaul wrote a fabulous book entitled The Bend of the River, and it tells the story of an Indian community that had lived and prospered in Uganda for generations and that is given a week to settle their affairs and then leave the country. Howard French's book, China's Second Continent, is really excellent. You're right. Migrating is high risk. 
My policy advice is not that people from China should move to Africa in large numbers. It was the opposite. Poorer countries in the world should welcome Chinese migrants and create incentives for people to stay there for a long time. There's a more general lesson that having people move from richer countries with folks with higher levels of education is going to have some positive spillover effect. It's in the interest of poorer countries to find ways to welcome those Chinese migrants, create a hospitable environment for them, because it will yield large benefits for their current residents and for the descendants of their current residents. Let's discuss importing high-quality institutions. In your book, you mentioned that British colonialism was superior to the Spanish and the French. One possible explanation for this was the strength of British institutions, democracy, rule of law, courts, and universities. The China example is the opposite. Their institutions are weak, but migrants don't seem to bring them along to their newly adopted country. Chinese migrants did not bring with them authoritarianism, tyranny, cultural revolutions, but instead you're finding democracy, frugality, and entrepreneurship. What do you make of that? I'm sympathetic to the idea that British colonial experience transplanted some good institutions that lasted, but it's a little hard to tease out causation there. Um, I will say China isn't just the poorest uh, majority Chinese country in the world. It also has the worst institutions of any majority Chinese country in the world. When we see Chinese migrants moving to new places, they are generally not bringing the worst parts of China to these new homelands. They're bringing something much more like the best prospects of Taiwan, of Singapore, and of Hong Kong. People who are living in China right now are being held back by this crummy communist oligarchy, right? North Koreans are being held back by an even crummier communist oligarchy. It's not current China that people should be trying to replicate around the world. It's the excellence of the Ming Dynasty. America has four major immigration programs, skilled H-1Bs, family reunification programs, lotteries, and refugees. What do you make of these four different immigrant silos? The question of what's the best migration policy for a country like the U.S. is probably to do what a lot of folks have been saying the last few years, which is to place a disproportionate emphasis on high-skilled migration. It's something around which there's already nascent consensus. Having a lot of STEM immigrants seems to be a, a good way to do this. I always think that every rich country in the world should find a way to welcome some refugees who are coming from the most horrifying circumstances imaginable. I think that's part of how we embrace our humanity. But on average, if we care about America's institutional quality, and if we care about America's ability to innovate and come up with new ideas that matter for the whole world, we should be focused on high-skilled immigration policies that will build our cognitive skills and help our institutions function better. The U.S. population is about 330 million people. So if you think migration policies that welcome 2% of the population in a year, that'd be 6 million new people coming to America. If I were giving advice on how to help both America and the world over the next century, I would try to find a way to make sure that the vast majority of that hypothetical 6 million migrant allocation would be coming from that H-1B highly skilled migrant category. There's certainly room for refugees. That's important. But finding ways to shift the numbers dramatically toward highly skilled immigration is probably going to be not just good for America, but good for the world 50 to 75 years from now. Next topic is refugees. 
I visited Wausau, Wisconsin, which is near where my son went to summer camp. It turns out that many Hmong people from Laos resettled to Wausau, and they're young and have lots of kids. The residents were unhappy paying for the Hmong's kids' schooling and other social services. How should local communities handle the unequal requirements for paying for refugees and their descendants? Americans have long been upset about migrants who have some transition costs. The Chinese Exclusion Act is a horrifying example of this. I both am enough of a utilitarian to say, yes, we should redistribute, and I'm enough of a libertarian to say, what do we owe to strangers? I don't know if there's any true owing, but I do think there's a certain generosity of heart that we should welcome another human being. I thought that the key insight of your book is that America is an entrepreneurial success story and that ideas that are invented here benefit the world. Some migrants enhance American productivity and improve our institutions, and others will undermine them. So we need to be very careful who we let into the United States. Migrants seem to make the countries they move to a lot like the ones they left. Countries that choose migration policies that end up having the net effect of bringing in folks from cultures that have higher levels of trust, higher levels of frugality, more laissez-faire, market-friendly attitudes toward government, they're going to have better prospects over two, three, four generations. The more theoretical argument is whether migrants from less successful cultures, countries with what I call lower SAT scores, whether their descendants are likely to lower institutional quality. Can you define your concept of an SAT score? S is state history. It's your ancestors' experience living under organized states. And in some parts of the world, that's gone on for many thousands of years. The Fertile Crescent would be a key example of that. Iraq would be a key example of that. A is agricultural history. It's how much experience your ancestors have had living under settled agriculture using modern farming techniques. T, the most important of the three, is your technological history score. What fraction of the world's available technology were your ancestors using in 1500? So together, state history, agricultural history, tech history, these are measures which combine together I call your nation's SAT score. And they seem to be very important predictors of your nation's prosperity, but much more so when you adjust for migration. Let's apply this to a real-life example. There's been a rush of immigration in the last dozen years into Germany from both Syria and Ukraine. Both are failed states. How would you use your tools and your framework to make a prediction as to which immigrant group will be more beneficial to the German economy a generation from now? That's a little bit of a tough one, right? Because Eastern European countries, they aren't great on these trust measures and some other measures of market friendliness. And around 1500, Eastern Europe was a technological backwater. Syria, of course, has much higher S and A scores, state history, agricultural history. So neither of these countries are at the lower end of the global scale of SAT scores. But on average, you would expect them to be a little bit lower than the current values in Germany, especially on T. And T is the best predictor of the three. So one would expect a sort of slight tax two, three generations from now. Not a disaster, but a slight tax on national productivity, on institutional quality, on social capital, the smooth functioning of government. I end each episode on a note of optimism. Garrett, what are you optimistic about? I am really optimistic about the prospects for prosperity across many countries in Southeast Asia. I think institutional quality, like Singapore, South Korea, 
and Japan. These countries are going to be really important in the economic order of the world. Globalization has made it much easier for people to learn about the great things that are happening in these countries. The rise of South Korean pop culture on the global stage is going to be a gateway drug to let a lot of people know just all the excellent things that South Korea is doing. South Korea's level of innovation is valuable to the entire planet. The entire world should learn about the excellence of South Koreans' rebuilding process after the horrors of the Korean War. It's really a model that all of us should learn from. Thanks to Rand and Garrett for joining us today. If you missed last week's show, check it out. Our speaker was Steve Kuhn, who founded Major League Pickleball, you know the one, where Tom Brady and LeBron are team owners. Steve is incredibly creative and highly excitable. You'll love him. Steve spoke about why pickleball has become the fastest growing sport in America and how he set up a player ranking system like a golf handicap. Steve founded a professional pickleball league, and you're going to hear about his marketing strategies to find team owners and how he built excitement for watching the world's best pickleball players. I now want to make a plug for next week's program about building your investment portfolio. Our speakers will include my old boss and dear friend Myron Scholes, who is a professor at Stanford and a winner of the Nobel Prize for his work on options theory. Our second speaker is Victor Agani, who runs Elm Wealth, an investment management business that invests in a portfolio of index funds. Vic uses a dynamic asset allocation model to maximize after-tax compounded returns. The product has very low fees, and Vic charges just 12 basis points. Vic maximizes tax loss harvesting, and he generates a portfolio with optimal diversification. I think this is the future of investing. You can find our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe to our weekly emails and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I would like to thank our audience for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.